Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, I brought my entire staging team from Boston Lyric Opera's Handmaid's Tale because we we just clicked so well and we all liked each other and we made this like fucking amazing production happen. So I was like, now you guys can all come and talk about it with me. <laughs> so on the podcast, I have Melanie and Julie, who are the ASMs, Bruno, who was really an ASM, and Michaela, who was the AD on the team. Uh, Julie, Melanie, and Bruno and I all did Burke and Hair together at Boston Lyric Opera in October of, I think it was 2017, which was a world premiere. And both of these shows were in found spaces. So instead of me talking about each of them, I just wanted to hand it over to each one of you and just to like introduce yourself a little bit and say kind of like how you got into opera and how you got into like where we are now. Because I feel like Melanie might be the only one that kind of started in music and opera. And just how we all got here, because we all have such different stories. So, who wants to start? I'll start, since you mentioned (laughs) (laughs) Go for it, I'm Melanie. Um, I am currently on the stage management team at Santa Fe Opera, which is really exciting. But I got my start in the opera world, actually, yes, as Cindy mentioned, from um, singing. I actually got my uh, undergrad degree in vocal performance, and then got my master's in vocal pedagogy. And as while I was in grad school that I started doing more production work and really fell in love with it and was lucky enough to have some mentors guide me through um, in starting the world of like directing and stage managing. And one opportunity led to another. And here I am in Boston's been <laughs> a really great place to help um, foster and, and learn uh, all of like the production skills that I've gained. So I'm very thankful for BLO for that. Awesome. Julie, you want to go up? Sure, yeah. So I came into opera completely by chance. I was working at a theater company in Boston, Company One, on a production when the lighting designer happened to be the production uh, manager, director of production at Des Moines Metro Opera. I was like, hey, we need an ASM. I think you'd be really great for this. You want to come with me? And I was like, sure. So he brought me to Des Moines for a summer. But before I ever went to Des Moines, he had me shadow uh, Chelsea and Andrew Dennis at BLO so that I could learn what opera was because I had never done it before. Um, Although I'd been a stage manager for a few years in theater. And so after shadowing with her for one day, like a week later, she emailed me and said, hey, we're looking for ASMs next season. What do you think? <laughs> and so before I'd ever stage managed or ASM'd any opera at all, I got hired at BLO for a full season, which was really amazing. And three years later, I am still here. And surprise, guys, I'm coming back. <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> yes, I will be joining you again for Caesar in Egypt next season. Whoa. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's really cool. I just love how we all like, well, most of us get into opera and we're like, well, it was just an accident. Wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. (laughs) Bruno, what about you? 
So I also had a one of those stumble and fall into the opera and never escape kind of stories. <laughs> yeah, uh, those are the best kind. It happens. I actually, so I was a I sang classically when I was uh in middle school in a boy choir school as a boy soprano, and yeah. so oh, yes, uh-huh. yep, 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 yep. And so that's where my uh my love and my start music happens but after my voice changed i kind of stepped away from that and started doing more theater and dance work and it was while i was at nyu studying directing that a small opera company approached me about assistant directing and stage managing for them i was like sure why not let's do it i have the you know i can read music i listen to some opera i sang some opera and then i started working for them and one thing led to another i you know I ended up beating all the people we all know now and that kind of stuff. And <laughs> then got, after I graduated, got started in Boston with Boston Lyric Opera. This summer, I'm as well with Melanie at the Santa Fe Opera on the stage management team. So it just, the ball just keeps on rolling. Woo. <laughs> it never stops. <laughs> and then, Michaela! Hello! Um... So mine's again it's kind of similar. So so I was in I was in the Shakespeare world basically exclusively for my my young life. Um <laughs> and uh was working I was actually uh trying to make my way back into theater. Um and I was working on a new play. I was assistant directing and the director of that play was simultaneously directing um a double bill at Juilliard and asked me if I wanted to come in for tech. And so I had, I, you know, I'd seen some operas, but I'd never, it wasn't a, an enormous part of my life. Um, and I went in and this production was just so magical and incredible. And I like completely fell in love with it. So it wasn't exactly falling backwards into opera. It was more like, I just didn't realize how much I had always loved it. So after that happened, um, I, I sort of launched myself into opera more fully and worked with him a bunch and um BLO was uh I got connected to BLO through Anne Bogart who directed The Handmaid's Tale I sort of followed her and and she went to BLO so there there I turned up as well (laughs) Um, yeah yeah we're so glad yes we are forever grateful oh man what a time One thing I find interesting, so before we actually started recording the podcast, I was telling a story that I actually won in the podcast. So the four of us, the five, how many of us are there? The five of us. <laughs> and you're you're the farthest east. It's You have no excuse on time zones right now. I exclude myself from things sometimes. So the five of us just worked so, so well together for Handmaid's Tale. And I, I know part of that was because three, four of us had, Jesus Christ, Cindy, four of us had already worked together for Burke and Hare. And so we kind of knew how each other works. And the three of you had been in like pretty much two whole seasons together at Boston Lyric Opera. So I guess let's step back. So the three of you were two seasons together at Boston Lyric. So you guys already knew how each other worked and how the company worked. And then I came in for Handmaid's Tale and kind of got thrown into that mix. And we worked really well together. And so before I even accepted Handmaid's Tale, I asked who was on the team. And when they told me it was you three, I was like, okay, well, then whatever you throw at me is going to be fine. Because I have the three of you there with me. 
I probably shouldn't have said that because they threw quite a bit at us. <laughs> I should not have made the challenge. Um, challenge accepted. <laughs> right, challenge accepted, and we won. And so, <laughs> so I love that we work so well together. And then Michaela came in and just like, I don't know, magically like just became a part of us and everything just yeah. worked and blended well together. Oh, so cry. <laughs> For Handmaid's Tale, I was telling the story to someone a few days ago when they asked, you know, what was a challenging situation and how did you overcome it as a team? And I was like, well, actually, two months ago, we were in this situation and it was just this Handmaid's was a big show. And, and Boston kept saying it was the biggest show that they'd ever done. And it was a, a new production and it had only been done in the United States once or the opera had. Um, and there were so many things that we had to juggle and take care of. And we kept finding ourselves in situations where we had to like go above and beyond and we had to take over or, you know, help step up where other things needed the support because it was such a big show. So oftentimes one of us would just like step out of the rehearsal room to go take care of something. And we were so close to each other that we would all just kind of like shift like you see in baseball fields, you know, where like someone comes up the bat and everybody moves 10 feet to the right, which literally I think <laughs> happened multiple times. And she was like... <clears throat> She was like, how did that happen? Did you communicate about that beforehand? Did you have a plan in place? And I was like, no, I don't think we did. I think we literally just did it. And it wasn't even always like I would step out and Julia would take over or I would step out and Melanie would take over. I was like, it literally depended on where we were in the show because some scenes were more costume heavy and some were more prop heavy. And so depending on where we were and who stepped out of the room, everyone just like shifted and like managed each other or like managed the rest of the room and we'd never really had to physically communicate about it and I just think it was such a special moment because I never once had to worry about like what was going to happen if I just left for 30 minutes yeah, it's normal for stage managers to leave rehearsal right all the time <laughs> yeah. well and also with that was like the it just kind of naturally happened it was so unique to because we were rehearsing in that ice rink and Melanie and Julie were both upstage of that <laughs> mask. So Cindy and I couldn't see them. But then it, we couldn't really, you know, it's a, you'd, you know, we'd run out and peep out and talk every once in a while. But then when we got those walkies, that was a game changer. Just because we were like a solid, what? We were each like 60 feet away from each other throughout the entire rehearsal process. I have never gotten in so many steps in a rehearsal process. (laughs) It's my Fitbit. was just blown. And I was like, I know that I need to wear these gym shoes, not just because we're standing on concrete, but because I'm actually running to go and figure out what's going on. But I do think like we anticipated that like with each other. And I think like our energies just work really well together. We're like, we know that this has to get done. So let's just all step up and get Mm -hmm. make it happen. Yeah. Because also that's one of the most amazing parts of our team is that when there is a hole somewhere, people step in and fill it and there's never any guilt or shade or like mm-hmm. put on the person who left the hole. It's always like, I know you were busy doing 10 other things, so I got your back. And yeah. that is that trust and understanding on a team is the most amazing part of being on the team with you guys. It just feels so good. I totally agree. There was never a moment where, yeah, that, I mean, I felt bad about other things, but never a moment where I was just like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I'm letting people down or I failed somehow. And even when personal things came up for each of us, you know, we're like, okay, fine, go take half an hour, you know, and come back and then we'll be good, which was so amazing. I'm wondering if some of that has to do with the fact 
I mean, I knew this, but every one of you talking about it is like so many of us have assistant directing experience, if that had Mm -hmm. anything to do with it. Just like being able to like step up and make the whole production happen. I think it it must like have an impact at least on what we can anticipate because I was actually thinking about this the other day in a rehearsal um one of the directors that we're working with here asked my friend and I like if we had a deed before she's like just because you're so on top of like anticipating the information I was like oh I guess so yeah I like never really thought about like that informing like what we do as ASMs but when you have so many costumes and like tricky props and like rolling units and everything you kind of just like have to anticipate like more information and be like, Michaela, how do you need us? Let us know. We're here for you. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's also like a lot of people to be managing too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we all were kind of like, this is going to be big. We know it will be, but we got each other's backs. Yeah. yeah. I also think that as ASMs and Bruno with you too, we've, we're at a point in our career now where we like we know what the deal is. We know that we're gonna have to anticipate more than we expect to have to anticipate or more than necessarily we should because not always are things communicated well because we've all had this experience together. We know that we just have to be fresh. I wonder if Julie keeps cutting out a little bit. Um, besides Aideen, but I think all of us have experience like calling shows as well. So I feel like being able to step into somebody else's shoes was never an issue because like we've all had all the other experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, I've never AD'd, I've never ASM'd, I can't do your job. All of us were just like, oh yeah, we could pick up the slack, which was, I mean, not slack, but you know, like pick up the fact that we needed like multiple people on that production, but still managed to I do also, it. I was also like thinking back to those wild chorus rehearsal days and I was thinking of like <laughs> look just like watching the stage and it's really a testament to the staging team of uh, Anne, Michaela and Shura who is our movement director on this piece that the three of you guys would divide and conquer so well so well there'd be so much work happening but we never were out of the loop about any changes or any necessities even Absolutely. though there was like three different things happening at once so it was like as much as we got done and things were happening so quickly we were always kind of on the team with you and informed and in the know with you guys yeah I mean this show it was so <laughs> like yeah those wild those wild chorus rehearsal days like it was and and just the structure of the show with how many scene changes there were and 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 just how many moving parts there were and how much was how much the chorus was involved with everything in a way that I don't even know that they expected. Um, I don't know, you know if anyone felt, expected that. No, no. Like, I think it felt very, it felt very clear to me that on the directing end, like, all of us had, uh, all of us, the three of us had, like, certain strengths that we wanted to, that we could play to and that we were filling in each other's holes all the time as well. And it very much felt to me that, like, one of the things that was super important is that we were communicating with the management team because you guys were, A, amazing. And, like, this show would (laughs) not have happened, like, with anyone else. I feel very confident saying that. And, And it also just felt like it did feel like the show thrived on this, on on being connected and on being a real team 
um, and not feeling super siloed. Like all of everything was so sort of interwoven. The movement work was dependent on when that bed was going to hit the stage. Like all of those things <laughs> were really, were really connected. So it felt like there, in some ways there wasn't that much difference in this show between you know, a management purview or a staging purview. It's like mm-hmm. the caps, the caps were like into integral to staging. And so it was like, everything was so linked. It was really clear how much work was necessary and how much, um, how much communication and sort of like shared energy we needed to have between every member of the, of the team. I have a question being a, a somewhat outside person. I mean, granted, I was getting phone calls and texts from Cindy, but I wasn't actually there. <laughs> you all have different titles and stuff. How did you uh, how did you organize who was doing what, especially on like the chorus rehearsals you said where multiple rehearsals were going on at once? How was that organized? As far as Michaela, Shara, and, and Anne? Uh, well, that and you guys, like, if there's three rehearsals going, where is Cindy? Where's Bruno? Where's Mel? Like, how did you guys always have the same group of people? Did that switch around depending on the time of the day? It definitely it wasn't... switched around. Yeah, it was yeah. planned. It just, we just kind of fell to a groove of, well, where am I needed most right now? Yeah. But who Who is giving information that I personally need to know versus who can I get information from later? And I think that's how I determined where I mm-hmm. should be. Um, but there was never anything super specific about it. And also it was be in as many places as you could be and just kind of bounce around and check. And then when those three sessions that were happening simultaneously would come together, then I feel like we communicated as a larger team. Mm-hmm. And the way it worked too wasn't so much that we were in necessarily like three different corners of the room even. Like it was sort of like three rehearsals were happening sort of overlaid on top of each other. So Shura would be focusing on the movement and I would be communicating with Cindy about this is when, you know, this is when the projection needs to happen. They think it's going to be here, but actually it's going to be like five bars later. So, like, <laughs> you know, uh, and then, and then Anne is talking to, one of the principles about I don't know something spiritual probably so it's like so so we were all working on the same moment and the same in the same room and in the same space but everyone had sort of a different energetic focus and so exactly as Julie said it sort of became you sort of got a sense for what whether you needed to be talking to who you needed to be talking to and what which of those kinds of sort of separate rehearsal that isn't a separate rehearsal you needed to be a part of got it yeah i was picturing more like you guys were in three separate rooms and i was like oh my god how do you do that but okay it was like three on (laughs) top of each other giant ice rink yeah (laughs) can we talk about the fact that it was an ice rink (laughs) no yeah because i have to go turn on the generator so i'm gonna step out (laughs) (laughs) give me give me 20 minutes no we should because like we i always talk in podcasts about like performing in non-traditional venues but I guess it's even more weird to like rehearse in a non-traditional venue so like we had to do this non-traditional thing twice for this show yeah they basically built us a a stage inside an ice rink so that we could go and work on a stage inside a basketball court (laughs) (laughs) what so was he the same 
we had similar issues with both because there was like heating and air conditioning issues in both areas. Mm-hmm. There was lack of bathrooms and dressing rooms and hanging out areas in both venues. There was power issues in both venues. As Bruno mentioned, like we literally had to bring in generators so that we can get power inside the ice rink to plug in all of our computers and laptops. And we had all of the monitors and the cameras and sound equipment and, and heaters and heaters because it was so cold. <laughs> And air conditioners thought it was gonna be hot. Yeah. yeah no. Ambient noise, the rain. noise. The roof and the rain. And the cannon. The porpoises that goes off. next door. My running out of rehearsal to take pictures. Uh-huh. I I think I liked all those pictures on our Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but it it was it was so yeah, it was so weird. I never even thought about like let's build a theater inside an ice rink so we can build a theater inside a basketball court. But, <laughs> but having that helped us so much. I mean, especially with, oh, sure. so we had, I'm sure people have seen pictures, but like our entrances and exits in four locations in the basketball stadium. And each of them was like at least 60 something feet away from the actual stage. And so I had an idea that I wanted to do that, but then you guys actually like made it happen. Like how we actually taped out the rehearsal hall so that there was that 60 something feet of space for people to enter. So we always queued from day one, like way back where they were going to enter at the actual performance venue because the whole audience could see them the whole time. So my favorite moments, again, I can't see Melanie and Julie because they're behind the black curtain, but <laughs> in the what we called like the front of house entrances where poor Bruno got stuck queuing everybody. <laughs> we had to literally cross each other. So because we had to like wrap around the front of the, the ice rink. So Bruno got used to like queuing stage right when they had to go to stage left because they literally had to run all the way around to stage left. How was that? Because I was worried for you, Bruno. How did that actually translate when we moved to the when we moved to the basketball stadium. Did you do okay queuing both sides? Yeah, I think the the, the switch in, uh, like, from left to right wasn't yeah. as big of an issue for me, and I was trying to warn the singers as much as possible, so we didn't really have that many kind of people showing up to the wrong places, thankfully. Uh, just because I, like, I would know, I would say, like, this is a downstage right entrance, even though I know you're halfway, you know, if you're almost all the way off stage left right now, because of how long we had to tape out this entrance. <laughs> and the fact that when we got to the theater, we switched to the cue light system because the entrances were so far from me, but, you know, it's, there were each, the singers, when they were on their standbys, were about 50 feet on either side of me, you know, just kind of have to build the sign language with them once we got into tech it's like <laughs> checking that you have your props like throwing two minute standbys with like characterizations of like you know smoking for serena joy and guns for our guards and like you know gun action two minutes smoking action two minutes <laughs> for moira i ended up doing the overalls so i'd like hold up my overalls as if i was you know being like moira it's you're you know you're on standby and that kind of thing. And so I think because we shifted so much in kind of how we worked as a downstage team in terms of communicating information, it was enough of a shift that they weren't even thinking about the left and right switch. Yeah, that's true. It was, to me, just so much easier, though, to like have those huge crossovers happen in rehearsal because there was no way that we would have been able to transition to that once we hit the deck if that hadn't have happened for two weeks prior. 
Yeah. yeah. Especially because Anne was so particular about when she wanted to see people. And yeah. De- like determining that whole language. And that was something that I had never experienced before. And so that was a big adjustment for me being like, oh, I have to track two entrances for one entrance. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Great. <laughs> but Bruno, you were the king of that. You were the king. You knew where, where both of everyone's entrances were. And bless you. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Half of the entrances and exits came from Bruno, which was amazing. We which had was this... also like not what we thought. We when we started, we were like, "That's just going to be the very first entrance, and right?" Everyone yes. else is going to come from upstate because that's the <laughs> pattern that we've come up with. And it was like, no, 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 just no, no. Kidding. And then it was only like day two or three where we were like, "This is getting a little out of hand. I think we're going to need additional help here." And instead, we just made Bruno do all of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well. We tried really hard to get extra support because God would it have been nice, but but right. Bruno, you know, you really killed it down there. I yeah, you I did. am so impressed by what you were able to do and without using any words. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Amazing. Bruno, can you send us the picture of you? So this is another story, but can you send us a picture of you and your um your armor Hard. gear before <laughs> before you go on? Because I I think that's like the best picture ever. So with that, we were, and I've, have I ever had this happen before? How long have I been stage managing? And I don't think this has ever happened to me before where we, our singers, singers and performers kept getting sick. And so it was like second and third performance or third and fourth performance. We lost one of our supers. Supers. And in this show, the supers were so essential because they did all of the scene changes and so many of the movements that like, missing one of them was a huge huge deal mm-hmm. and so we oh my god i'm having traumatic flashbacks <laughs> <laughs> i was trying to think when did we get the phone call like bruno knew around noon that this guy wasn't gonna come in not I think even it... i think it was because i had i remember this very clearly so i had a phone interview at 4 p.m and i had we had like we had like i had like an hour to come to be like here's i've gone through everything Here's what we need. It was like insane. I think so, I think Cindy, you and I were talking on the phone at like three. Okay, so like I three. Remember, yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember the first, the third performance or the fourth performance where at like two a.m. in the morning, you know, like the morning before, I got a text and I was like, "Uh oh, this isn't gonna be good." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is gonna be challenging. So what we ended up doing on this one is like Bruno called me. I get permission from like the powers that be who are like, okay, make it happen. And then we call Michaela and we like talk through the entire show and we're like, okay, this guy's missing. So who can we put in his place? What supers can cover? What chorus members can cover? What can we just ignore and pretend like that just never is going to happen in this performance? Um, And we came up with a whole list and then we like sent the information out to you guys. And then you guys helped us figure out if we had everything and if it was possible, because you obviously knew backstage much better you know, like, if we do this switch, is it still physically possible? Mm-hmm. And we finally got it down to where we got, like, everything except for, was it two moments, I think? Or was it one moment that you went out? Possibly two it, moments. One? It was, yeah. just, it was just the one moment. It was the salvaging scene. The just salvaging. Because, yeah. because everyone was on stage and had not something. O- yeah. yeah. Not only everyone, but our entire like, scenic crew and props crew. Yeah. It's like, we were, <laughs> like we were out of yeah. performers and crew, like, max to capacity. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, because we even had to costume crew for this moment because there was so much going on on stage. And so we we're like, we just don't know what to do and we got to get these things to happen. And so Bruno fit into the costume of the guy who was sick. <laughs> and so we sent Bruno out on stage. So besides like queuing half of the freaking opera, Bruno now gets into costume at some point. I don't remember <laughs> so when you got into costume. I um, had I, so I had two moments in the show. I yeah. do have my own dresser, bless Diana. God, <laughs> no, but the only two moments in the show where I had more than I guess like more than two minutes where I wasn't throwing standbys or throwing cues was for the Offred Munaria and the double Offred duet. Those were the oh, only yeah. two yeah. moments yeah. where I was like, Oh, I have five minutes just oh, to I sit can down. Drink of- Yes, hydrate and hydrate moment. Where I can and interestingly, both C9 and one C9 and two C9, there's a symmetry there. If you look oh. at the back of the score, oh. that, yeah, it's, that's all on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> to give Bruno time to get a drink. That's very exactly. nice of you guys to do. Yeah. No, this Bruno. was to give Bruno time to get into costume so he could go on stage. <laughs> But actually, yes, I had a cue in my book to be like, okay, send Diana to Bruno now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. It was such an amazing, uh, amazing experience. But as I think Michaela said, I, I couldn't imagine any of this working with any other team because, or a team that had not worked at Boston together before. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. Because each company has their own like unique way of working and their unique like who does what, who goes where. And I've been at Boston two shows now and I still can't tell you what half of the people in the office do or like what their titles mean. But but you guys all did or we could like figure it all out together. And just having that like team dynamic was essential for both new works and non-traditional venues, which is so amazing. Um I do remember Melanie was saying something about running shoes. I remember when I was in prep the week before and I was like writing you all super excited that you were showing up. I was like, so Birkenhair was really easy. And I told you it was going to be easy. I'm telling you right now, this show is not going to be easy. I need you all to bring running shoes because even before everything, you know, got changed up, like we knew it was going to be a, a huge, huge thing. So what were some challenges for you guys about the non-traditional venue? Like, what was weird that you how, don't usually experience in regular theaters? How many of you have worked a lot in non-traditional spaces? I mean, as a team at this point, we've all worked together a fair amount because BLO's kind of become, like, the installation opera company of the country. Um, <laughs> be, just because we don't have a home, and so we've just kind of been, like, making different spaces work. So we're sort of used to having to be flexible with that. And then, of course, as we were talking about earlier, like, being flexible with rehearsal venues and making that work. And I think um, the most challenging thing for me, for Handmaids, was that lack of backstage space. Um, oh, right. Because there were so many rolling units that every night was like a Tetris game of people and things. Um, and we knew that we wouldn't have a lot of space to be given. So it was helpful to like tape that out in the ice rink. But it still wasn't quite the same because you don't have all those walls. And you don't have all like the extra bodies of dressers and people and prop crew and everybody running around. Um, and so it was well, then all the lighting equipment that ended up back there. So right. much lighting yeah, equipment, so many cables, so many cables. <laughs> 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 um, but it was really interesting having to learn what certain 
moments were that I felt like I was choreographing like certain moments, um, especially when we had to have everybody lined up in a certain single file line or like we had to wait for these people to come off and the bed to come off. But then these people had to be coming on that. It was such a game of Tetris back there. Um, and, And having to figure that out early on without all of the necessary space because also what kept changing um, was where we were having our masking and that was also causing a lot of issues in terms of like what who could fit where and who was actually pulling the curtain and it was just a fun challenge to figure out. <laughs> fun challenge. Yes. It was definitely a rewarding challenge to figure out. I know Mel, you definitely did more of that work but like tag teaming to figure out well, can this really go here? Is this the best position? And maneuvering those bodies. I mean, it it, it reminded me of backstage right, Rake's progress of just like, this is what needs to happen and we have yeah. to figure it out. And we did. And I think this show, because of the challenges that we faced and because they were so huge, will always be one of my favorites, no matter what. Just like, it was a fantastic production. It was a fantastic show. The cast was great. And we really had to step up our game and rise to that occasion. And I think we all did in a major way. So I'm going to take that as a win in my book. Oh, yeah. Uh, Julie said something that I was going to talk about, and then I forgot what it was. Oh, about the challenge and having to step up. I feel like those are the most rewarding experiences and I don't I keep finding myself in those situations I don't either because I put myself there or they just happen around me but I think it's one of the things that I love about non-traditional venues and weird (laughs) shows like this because I mean to be honest with you I mean Melanie and I just did um Elixir of Love in Omaha back in January and it's really a piece of cake compared to everything else because like you're in this traditional venue, you're doing Elixir of Love, which has been done a ton of times. It was a show that had already been produced multiple times and it had a few challenges, but you know, like it was what it was. We were fine. Yeah. Like it wasn't that bad. Um, But then to do something like Handmaid's Tale with all of these challenges, even if it was like super, super difficult, I feel they're the ones that I'm most proud of because we accomplished the most and like, was able to challenge myself the most and was able to like step up and do these things and like learn how to be a better stage manager and communicator and how to manage people. And maybe hopefully I learned a little bit about that, how to eat dark chocolate, which was a new thing for me, you know, like there was a lot of things <laughs> I learned about myself. Um, but like Julie said, it's just like the most rewarding because you just have to rise to that level. And we all did, which was so awesome. And I think also speaking to that is like, how it never felt like a, it was never a question whether we would or wouldn't rise right. up to that level or that, you know, there was, and especially because like how much the challenges that were coming up, despite the, their wackiness or despite the, you know, intense, the intensity of problem solving, it's like the show and the entire cast, the entire creative team were so lovely that and everyone yes. in that rehearsal room was giving their 110% and so dedicated and so lovely that it was kind of the thing like, oh yeah, of course we're going to make this happen because, you know, everyone is working in their, in their really level their and, job. and really good. Yes. At, exactly. So it's, so I think that was also a huge motivation in terms of problem solving all these things of just, yeah, we're just going to make it happen because it's almost like a belief in this show and, and a dedication and a testament to 
the people we're doing it for, which was such an incredible group of artists. Yeah, I would, I would totally, I completely agree. And I also think, I don't know, to like take it, I know everyone when I was working on the show would ask me like how it's going and not necessarily because of like how's rehearsal going, but like how is dealing with this material going? Like you're in the room with this like really, really um, intense material every day that's like super demoralizing and Mm -hmm. um, especially at this time in our culture, like feels really prescient and really scary. (laughs) And, um, and so how, how are you dealing with it? Like, how do you feel? And so I always would say my answer to that question was always, the material is super important, but everyone in the room is like so full of joy. Um, and so it's a delight to be there. And then when we're doing these really hard scenes, it's, you know, terrible, but like we're all so supportive of each other. And so to Bruno's point, it both felt like it makes it easy to step up when you believe in the people. It makes it easy to step up when you believe in the art. And it's also like, it makes it easy to step up when you're like, actually this, I don't know, this is maybe like really like hippie woo woo, but it was like, that show is about, a, a you know, a dictatorial fascist regime. And like the way that that room was run was like undoing all of that. That like, was a, yeah. that was a question I had for you guys. You, your team was so heavily female. Do you think, how, how do you think that worked with, a show that was so anti-female. I was so grateful. Yeah, seriously. And then to have David, our conductor, who is is the most supportive person you'll ever meet and the most collaborative conductor you'll ever meet and his support of the show and of opera, but also of telling the story. And he believes in like equal opportunity and rights and gets very upset when like, that isn't established and so to have him kind of at the helm as well was again there's so many conductors I can think of that I would not want to do that show with um but David is one that I would always do that show with because he was so wonderful to work with and I think it was there it was Boston's what was interesting that you said that is because we were all women but our design sorry Bruno you're being brought in as a woman (laughs) You know, glad to be a part of the team. Yeah. <laughs> Bruno about... brought balance to the... But our entire design team were men. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Because Anne obviously is female and your uh, conductor was male, but all, all your designers or most of your designers? So Shura was the movement director. She was a woman, still is, conceivably. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, uh, James Shooty was set and costumes, and then Brian Scott was lights, and then we had Jay on sound, mm-hmm. and Tom on wigs. Yeah, yeah, and and Adam on video, and Adam on video. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just ran into him on the street the other day, by the way, oh, which wow. is exciting. Yeah, he seemed well. <laughs> yeah, so it's. The, I mean, the dynamics always change once you get into tech, but it was very interesting to walk into tech where they were all men. So I'd be like sitting at a tech table. I went from like, you know, being with predominantly females in the rehearsal room um, with Bruno standing at my back 24-7 and then to get into the tech 
situation and just be like almost all men. But did that change I, the dynamic or did that make any different like their perspective versus female perspective versus did any of that change? Uh, I mean, I know they've you guys have all gone through like production meetings and designer runs and stuff, but actually having them there in the room consistently during tech. With it's, one of them, but that might have to do more with that individual. Cricket, cricket. We can always cut that question out. <laughs> yeah. No, I do think, I do think that the, it's interesting. I wouldn't have, the dynamic definitely changed and it isn't until right now that I, that it occurred to me that that might have something to do with it. Um because I mean, so much changed when we moved into the space anyway, in terms of what our expectations had been from being in an ice rink to now being in a basketball, just like there was so much change. Like the yeah. dynamic was always going to feel really different, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and we I had so little tech time. So like that was already extra pressure and extra uh, stress. Yeah. Um yeah, and so in some ways it was just like adding artistic voices to a process, which can be really, I don't know, certainly from my end, there were moments where it's like, I've been here the whole time. So like, this, you know, so don't blah, blah, blah. But like, there were a lot of moments where it's like, oh, no, like having someone who hasn't seen this yet, uh, really, or seen it develop and isn't attached to necessarily how it's developing. There are times where that turns out to be totally correct and then there were some notable times where we did a lot of changes that we we didn't need to do and we went back to what we originally had um mm -hmm. so 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 yeah i don't know it's yeah i don't know about this question but um but uh it was um it was definitely, it definitely different. added a, a different dynamic i know i know even like working with tom in wigs and makeup um, versus his assistant, like just the dynamic working with those two people and the energy that they brought to the wig and makeup room. And then having Diana be a part of that also, it was just very different. And I would say it was the same with James working in that room. When he would walk in, the energy in the room would change. And I don't necessarily know if that's because he was a man or if because he was a designer and that's just the energy he brought with him as a human in general, right. but I do notice that there was a shift there. Mm -hmm. so, for whatever that's worth. And I also kind of, I might be backtracking a little bit, but in terms of talking about the intensity of source material and how, bo how both like uh, the undoing and generosity of and joy of the performers and of the creative team really helped with the with combating that i also think it was I also attest a little bit to mel's position which i want her to speak a little bit about that she did for this and lucretia as a what was the exact title now it's like uh um, the company intimacy advocate yes mm. that that we had a point person in the room both in yeah. terms of based on if you know that we that we can go to someone and express and voice concerns or discomforts based off both like the way people are working and the things that are happening and so even though I don't think I ever really had to go to Mel for this process just the fact that there was someone in the room that from that the company has dictated kind of as a 
point person for ensuring a, you know, a healthy working space on such a difficult piece with such intense material, I think that also put a, a sigh of relief, at least, that we had that support for, uh, on Mel's side. Mm-hmm. I agree. And just having having the company think about that beforehand was such a huge um was such a huge deal because that's not something that I've run into at a lot of companies. And like I just did Lure Espanol at Wolf Trap. We opened last night and our entire show was full of sexual innuendos. And yeah, that's comedy. the entire show. Yeah. Yeah. And it was and because of the way it's dealt with in the show itself like in the text it's dealt with in this like light and funny way and so it was really hard for the director to kind of maintain a supportive environment to speak about this because that was one thing that the company did not take into consideration when we were working on it was having someone in the room who could really speak to this uh this topic because it's a hard thing to ask people to do to be intimate. And I'm glad that our society uh, and our industry is starting to, to deal with this. And so I was really grateful that BLO on this production and on Lucretia had somebody in the room who could really deal with it because it made a huge difference. Yeah. And I don't think, um, I feel like the, the stigma is now and, and we're trying to change it, but it's just that, you know, you go to stage an intimate moment, um, in a scene and you just kind of assume that everybody's okay with it. Right. And I, I appreciate that we're now not making that assumption and being like, well, let's, you know, let's establish that we are actually okay. Permission to touch you, permission to do this. And, um, and having Shura there who has also had experience with this, where she was like very clear with the artist and said, you know, if there's something that's uncomfortable, let's name it. If there's something like we need to just be so communicative about it. Um, and I think that that was super helpful and something that surprised me on actually both Lucretia and Handmaids was um, how I, I did have that role of just like advocating for the artists and making sure that they were feeling comfortable in those very tricky and intimate scenes. But beyond that, having artists come up to me for other concerns that they had, um, for example, the one day when we were starting to do the salvaging scene and we had the nooses present, like that is can be a big trigger for some people. Um, and the fact that some people did feel comfortable enough to voice that to me and we were able to address it in their room, I think was super important. And I don't know that anybody would have gone up to anyone if without that. that. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, the permission is huge. The permission for sure. is, is key in situations like that. But so, also I think, I think I was, what was new to me was I've seen, I've been in rooms where there's like a, where there's on the design team, there's, there's sort of an intimacy coach or advocate or what have you. Um, but I, I hadn't been in a room where there were two people who were named to, to be advocates, um, that there was one person who's doing it for the show and one person who's coming in as a representative of the company. And that to me felt so important and really, um, distinct at least in my experience um because it allow it just it allows for this freedom of like if you don't if you know someone from the company you may be more comfortable talking to them or maybe you're mm-hmm. let's or maybe it's something related to the company and you don't and you want to talk to someone who's uh who's coming in from outside and being able to sort of provide two different resources um to people 
also allow like there, you know, there are things that one person is going to catch and notice and maybe the other person doesn't. And so having both people there felt like so smart and really important and, and wasn't a thing that I had encountered before. Mm-hmm. I've never even heard of this and maybe, maybe it's more of an opera thing. Maybe I just don't do, I don't know. You never, you're really in that. the rehearsal room, I think. And a lot of yeah, these things come true. up like as you're staged and not when you hit tech or they should come up earlier than yeah. tech. So yeah. Mel, did you have outside, how did you become the company intimacy advocate? Do you have outside training? Are you just, you were, you volunteered for it. How did you get to that position and what, what resources did you have to help you with that position? Yeah, so um, I was volunteered for. Um, I got an email from a production manager at the time who was like, we want to create this position for the company. We think that you would be great at this. And I do have a degree in psychology, so I have that background. Um, and uh, they were kind of like, we don't really know exactly what the role is going to be, but we think it's important to have one. And we think that this is kind of the description of what will your, what your job will be is of, of just receiving the consent from the artist before engaging in our first staging rehearsals for certain scenes, making sure that, um, that we're abiding by the blocking and the choreography that the movement director or the director establishes, and then um, being a voice and a safe space for an artist should they need to voice any concerns or opinions kind of a thing. So when I had been given that description, I was like, okay, so what does that mean in terms of me actually doing something like, do I need to fill out like a report? Like, is there a formalized way? And they're like, well, no. And like, we've done our research and there's no like specific set way to do this. Um, So if you could just be like, establish yourself as a point person, we'll announce you at the first design meeting um, and then just kind of go from there. So I sort of just established my own rapport with the artist and made sure that like I had one-on-one time with them and FaceTime with them um, and established, you know, if you do have any concerns, like I am that person you go to. Uh, And it was just kind of like playing as we go. But now as I'm in, you know, working with other companies too, I'm like, I'm wondering if like everybody should have somebody that's pointed. Uh Um, Yeah. Yeah. Just especially for, operas with such heavy topics and even those that like don't have it you know I feel like people especially since opera is such um a traditional art form you get those operas that are in repertory that you don't really think about as being like tricky at all or like for example Tosca right um, yeah you're like oh it's just Tosca like we all love a Tosca but there is a scene where Scarpia is quite violent or can be quite violent with her mm-hmm. um and I feel like people just kind of assume that you know everybody knows that that happens. So we're just going to do it and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But I think defining having somebody in there, at least having a a movement director or director who is more vocal about like the whole permission and naming process um, is super important in today's climate, especially. And Mel, correct me if I'm wrong, but the company kind of, I don't believe this is like, if this is the right wording, but the company gave you permission that if a singer requested to stop repeating blocking or stop working on a scene that you could shut down like a director being like and that's enough for today thank you we'll erase this and resume this another day like you had that kind of authority so it added a new level of checks and balance that we never thankfully had to use this season but just the fact that you know there was a that it was there yeah yeah Yeah. 
without but, asking questions. Like nobody had to say this person wants to stop. Mel could just say we need to stop, you know. And so like nobody yeah. else was put in the spotlight, and nobody was made to feel uncomfortable, which would have been super, you know, which was amazing yes. because people sometimes are afraid to come forward because of that. They don't want to get called out, but Melanie created that that safe space for them. The the thing about Tosca and stuff that you're talking about makes me wonder. We called it specifically like intimacy coaching or intimacy advocacy, but I think it took on a whole new level, especially for Handmaid's Tale, because the whole thing about the gallows wouldn't be considered an intimacy thing, but it was a right. trigger point, you know, and that person still felt like they could come forward and talk to you because we'd already established that like safe environment. Yeah. That I think is interesting that I never really thought about before because so many operas have intimacy but they also have all these other like people always die they're murdered they're killed you know there's all these other trigger points that could happen so even if you're doing something that doesn't have a sex scene or a rape scene or intimacy I wonder if it would still be I mean I feel like it should be essential to still have that communication open and have that person that's available yeah so do you think another name would be more fitting? I mean, it's kind of hard to be like, and this is the person you go to for any possible mental <laughs> issues. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. Coordinator? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know what another title would be because I don't know. I, don't know. I just think it, that it would it's, encompass a lot. Yeah. 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 I yeah, guess it'd be kind of hard to define. I think as long as the people in the room know that there is an advocate there for them when they need it, that that person's <laughs> responsibility could be more than they maybe signed on for, kind of like with what Mel experienced during that moment with the gallows. I think, I think just having somebody available there makes all the difference, no matter what you call them, because that person True. can... can can be the advocate for anyone. Yeah. And I mean, we, we work in an industry where we're asking people to be their most vulnerable and performing mm-hmm. on stage and people are not going to be able to be in that state of vulnerability if they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't feel free to create. And I feel like have being able to have somebody there for them, even if they are feeling something or not feeling stuff, or even if it's just like, I am feeling like this person isn't hearing me out today kind of a thing. Um, not to get too like, oh, we need to have like a, a mediator or a counselor in rehearsal rooms, not at all, but just so that people feel like they are being given an environment where it's safe for them to create is super important. And sometimes that's just a matter of them being able to vocalize what they're feeling and then that's it, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't even know, I don't even know that having a mediator is, is a, an overly extreme idea. Like if you think about it, like the sort of, just the like basic structure of a rehearsal room um, in opera or in theater. It's like the power structure is like totally screwed up. Like yeah. it's like, it's, it really yeah. is. It replicates a very old, it's a very old model of, of leadership, let's say. Um, and so, and I think that this, this particular room was so special and be in how horizontal that power felt like, Anne was so generous with where, you know, it felt like an idea could come from anywhere and it would mm-hmm. be celebrated. And, yes. you know, and, mm-hmm. and Anne also has this amazing sense of humor, but it, she was also 
you know, she would, she, I think we can all remember her saying like, I, I believe in credit and I believe in blame. So she was, like, <laughs> she was like very, very open with like, I remember there were so many times where like, you know, the solution would come from anywhere. Like if Bruno had a great idea and would be like, Bruno, like she would call out wherever the idea came from and celebrate it. And when things didn't work, she'd be like, Michaela, you're fired. <laughs> um, but so, you know, and, and so it like creates this space in the room where both through, both through having um, someone like Mal, who is explicitly there for, for if there are any sort of big problems, but also having an environment where the sort of power given to a director is a little disrupted. And Anne does that herself because she's Anne. But like, I think mm -hmm. that that's so important to have because Mal's totally right. Like at the end of the day, like what you're asking of a performer is to be like alone on stage, being like accessing incredibly vulnerable parts of themselves. But the person that's like sort of like telling them what, how to do that is like safe in the dark somewhere and like you know it's it's it can be it can be a really complicated dynamic and so I don't know I do think that like having I think it's so smart to have a mediator to just make sure that like that power is being wielded responsibly and that leadership mm. is being handled in a way that suits our values now in 2019 and isn't just like arbitrarily doing what we've always done just because it's what we've always done mm -hmm. yes this is yes. so interesting and kind of brings it back to what we were talking about at the beginning is that I feel like the entire setup of this rehearsal of our show was so non-traditional in the opera world because we didn't have one director who was giving directions it was so split between Anne, Michaela and Shura and there wasn't even David Angus wasn't like the dictator conductor he was so like what do you guys want to do what is how does this work and so it wasn't you know like maestro's in charge this is how it happens I mean he didn't even like to be called a maestro and then the way that <laughs> the four of us all kind of work together you know like I mean and I hope I'm true saying this it's weird saying this as a the leading stage manager but like the four of us would just interchange all the time you know and so there never was like this person's in charge and these people you know our assistants it was just kind of like today this person's in charge today this person's in charge and I feel Both like it did five minutes these, this person's in charge right exactly but I think it just so created good. this whole collaborative environment from the top from all of us that you know trickled its way down and made it available for everybody else to feel like they could also be part of this collaborative process and it wasn't like this is Anne's idea and this is David's idea and this is how this whole show is going to happen yeah I I'm totally so agree for that Especially since everyone talks about theater being collaborative, but like you said, it's it's not always collaborative. It's this person said this is what we're doing and this is the blocking, so that's it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially when, I mean, the other, we had, how many weeks did we rehearse before we moved in the basketball court? Like two? Yeah, like, we yeah. Had, like, many. And this, and this show is massive and it was a fully new production. Like, so, and I think that's often in, in theater and in opera, you sacrifice so much collaboration because of time, you know, you're like, yeah. I would love this dreamy collaborative world where everyone can participate, but like we have an hour to stage. We got to do this. Yeah, now. we have to do it. So you just have to like, so you sacrifice a lot. And that's the thing that I'm like, I don't know. I, I, again, I'm so grateful to everyone, the, the sort of the, the tenor of the room, we didn't have, it wasn't like we were in, you know, 
we weren't like rehearsing Chekhov in Russia for like several months, you know, like we were there <laughs> moving really, really quickly. And yet I don't think I felt like in this case, that quickness led us to be so collaborative as opposed to oftentimes where when things are moving quickly, it becomes more um, more like one person being like the blocking's this and that's it. And no questions asked because we don't have time to answer them. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's because all of us put in those amazingly extra hours like the three of you guys would come in an hour too early every single day to figure out how the blocking was going to work and you know the four of us would be in there just as early with you like working with you to figure out okay now where do these props go where do these costumes go where are the props going so that we would figure it out in advance but then we'd also have these like hour two three hour long meetings afterwards regularly like getting on the same page with entrances and exits and stuff and so mm -hmm. we just had to work collaboratively so that the singers felt like, you know, we knew what was going on, even though it would be fine by the seat of our band sometimes <laughs> yeah. in the moment. Yeah. And then we would figure yeah, it out really afterwards. Got, but. We really got yeah. the best of both worlds in, in this process, which I think was part of the magic of it. Yeah. And also just as a, a fun footnote, uh, with, so BLO's who, what, where, we don't put any technical information. We just put the entrances and exits. And as Julie was saying, how everyone had two entrances because Cindy had all of the deck hits uh, in her book with yes. lighting. My who, what, where, I only focused on ASM cues and ASM cue entrances and exits. And just that document alone, just entrances and exits, we hit 51 pages. <laughs> wow. Oh my god! Oh we my had goodness. so many entrances. So many names. But even that, yeah. whole, so we had like a five-hour meeting. We had one four-hour meeting and then another like two-hour meeting between the stage management team, literally going page by page measure by measure, making sure everybody was on literally the same page on who entered when and what prop they had. And mm -hmm. again, all the ASMs had mostly like when they cued them, but my book always had when they hit the deck. And because there were so many, going through that document was so confusing for me because all of our things were out of order because it was cue before like the next person entered, you know, it's like, no, wait, we missed this person. I was like, oh no, that literally happens two pages later, but they hit the deck. So, you know, that it was so weird. It was such a weird process for us, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Hey, Somehow friends, we made it work. I, I have to interrupt by, by leaving. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. No, I no, no. We've, we've, we've hit an hour. I texted twin. She wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yay thanks julie yes oh, thank you guys i'm so glad i was able to get to talk with you this was really refreshing thank you yay. i miss you all i miss I you, love you. Too. Miss you, too. I love you. Happy <laughs> thank you have fun out oh, there happy opening. yay <laughs> talk to you soon bye. bye i feel like we've taught we've touched on a lot of topics yeah, yeah we have pretty comprehensive yeah, podcast. How to make Interviews. a handmade tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, now every time people ask me how it was, I'll be like, "Here, just go listen to this podcast." This is how exactly. It was. Yeah, just send them a link. This is, <laughs> this is how it happened. This is how we made it happen. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, I want to have you all on individually at some point, but this was so important to me because it's all of my favorite things. So, yeah, thank you for yeah. having us. Yeah, this was so yeah. fun. Yes, thank you. We'll, we'll do it again on our next collaboration together. Oh, yes. We'll have a huge yeah, one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And we'll let you know it's going to come out next week, I think. So great. Yay. Yay. Okay. <laughs> thank you, everybody. <laughs> Bye.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.